How many of you have a Bible on you this morning? Oh, that was quiet. Okay, how many of you have a written Bible on you this morning? And how many of you are cheating with your phones? All right, whatever Bible you have, please turn in it to Acts chapter 2. We began a series last week where, where we're going to be going through the book of Acts. It's going to take us several months. Uh, <clears throat> the reality is you could spend years unpacking the book of Acts. But Acts is very unique as a book in the Bible because it's, it's really the only storytelling kind of a book after the death of Christ. It talks about that first generation church and it starts to tell the stories of what God was doing on the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the early church. And when you and I read through the book of Acts and we read these stories, we need to be able to reflect on it and see ourselves as a church in the story. This is a model for us. There are ideas in here and concepts and stories meant to encourage us as churchgoers. And it's called the book of Acts for a reason, because it's a book of action. How many of you believe the church is a church of action? I think one of the things that our enemy has been so successful at doing is convincing us that church is someplace where you be quiet and you just attend and you, shh, don't, don't, don't sing and praise God. Don't serve, don't worship him, just observe. But the Bible isn't that way. And the book of Acts is certainly not that way. It's a book of action. Aren't you glad that the early church had the, had the courage to step up and do what God called them to do? Because now we can read those stories today and be encouraged ourselves, and we draw great examples from them. Acts chapter 2 is possibly, not possibly, it is one of the most pivotal and exciting chapters in all of the Bible. It is a major mile marker moment in the history of the church. It's a, some of the things we're going to read today are a source of lots of doctrinal controversy today. In modern times, there's a lot of things that people debate about this moment in history. I'm not going to be able to unpack all those things for you today, but as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see more and more uh, of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and what you and I can learn from that. Uh, also, as a part of this series, I want to mention before I start reading, uh, we have a Bible reading plan for you through this entire time. I've got some printed sheets out there on the Welcome Center. I ha- we had some here last week. You can go to our digital bulletin, and it's there as well for you to follow along. So we read chapters one and two by this point. It'd be easy for you to catch up. Don't bail now just because you missed the first week. Uh, jump in there and join us in reading each week. This next week, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 3 throughout the week, and then next week, we'll hear from Mark Spencer. I don't know whether or not he'll preach out of Acts chapter 3, but that's what we're doing as a church. I think it's important for us as a community of believers, as a family, to be going through something to get together from time to time like this, all reading the same scriptures together. Acts chapter 3 will be this next week. Okay, I want to begin in chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to be lucky to get past verse 1 today. There's so much information in here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So what's the context here? Jesus has died. He's resurrected. Hundreds of people have witnessed the resurrected Christ. That's why the testimony went out into the world was so powerful. Because so many people had witnessed this man risen from the dead, having conquered death. As a first fruits for you and I, it's a very important uh, a part of our belief system. 
and he's ascended into heaven, and he says, he, he says you, you're going to be my witnesses. Okay, we read this last week. You're going to go, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Guess where Montana is? Ends of the earth. From Jerusalem, anyway. Hey, it's home for us, but what, you know what, Jesus he foresaw, even back then, that clear out on the other side of the planet, his gospel would be going. And why? Through his people. But he says, wait. But wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. Just wait there. So that's where we pick up the story now. They're waiting. But it's the day of Pentecost, and this is so important for us to notice. This holiday was in existence before this event. Okay, the Jews celebrated a feast called Pentecost. It's so important for you and I to understand what the Old Testament taught because what it does is it foreshadows Christ. They're all types of illustrations telling us, you know, telling the Jews there will be a Messiah. There will be this Jesus someday. There will be the Christ. And sometimes we have a tendency to look at the Old Testament. We flip through all that stuff or we get, we get into the book of Leviticus and we're like, what does this have anything to do with my life today? That's ancient history. Jesus fulfilled that on the cross, doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you it matters. It absolutely matters because the more you learn, the more your faith grows. You know, the Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we read in the Old Testament and we realize how Jesus has fulfilled those things, suddenly our confidence and faith is increased. So I think it's really important for for us to understand that in this moment, on this day, one of the feasts of the Jews is fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it was a feast of Pentecost. So Jesus is foretold of in many ways in the Old Testament, including the Jewish feasts. Okay, let's, I just want to give you a little background here. We have, uh, in, the Jews have in the spring, they have three feasts. And they're all kind of lumped together. You got Passover, which is the meal on the first, that happens first. Then immediately commences the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in the midst of that, you had the Feast of the First Fruits, okay? They're all right together. And we don't have time to get into all the details of that, but most of us, if you know your Bible, you know the story of Passover. Passover was celebrated because God freed the Jews from Egyptian slavery. And, uh, and the final plague that happened in Egypt was the angel of death passed over Egypt and killed all the firstborn. It was a horrific and powerful event, but it liberated the Jews. And what God had them do, take a lamb that is spotless. We sang it this morning, right? Uh, how, how did the words of the song go that we sang? Our, uh, the lamb that was slain. He's a lion of Judah, but he's a lamb that was slain. Well, what the Jews did at Passover, clear back in Egypt, is they took a lamb without spot or blemish. And they sacrificed it, and they put the, the, they marked the doorpost with the blood of that lamb. So sometimes we sing that, and we go, that's weird. Why are we singing about a lamb that was slain? These guys are creepy. But it's actually remembering a story where an innocent lamb shed its blood to protect the people from death. Aha, what does that remind you of? Jesus is the Passover lamb. So when Passover came, guess who was crucified on Passover. Jesus, the lamb, he was sacrificed on that cross. His blood shed on that cross like a doorpost. And why? So that we could escape the consequences of eternal death. But then you've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what they would do 
is, you know, when they escaped Egypt, you know, how many of you know how to bake bread? And how many of you are, how many of you are inviting me over for lunch today? Okay. So what do you do with bread? When you're making bread, you, you put some yeast in it and, and you let it sit. And what does it do? Rises, or in my case, explodes. Okay, it rises, but you got to wait for it to rise. But they were in a hurry. When they fled Egypt, they ate their bread without leaven, without yeast. And, and they, God then established this feast to commemorate that thought. And leaven is all, often representative of sin in the Bible. Not every instance, but in a lot of instances, it represents sin. And so what they would do is they would go through their house and they would they would literally clean all the nooks and crannies and corners and they'd sweep out their whole house so there was no yeast in the house. Now, now uh, yeast is everywhere in the air, right? It gets into, you know, how did they invent beer or wine? How'd they come up with these kind of things? This fermenting process, the yeast, you know, it's in the air and it gets into things and causes things to ferment. It's everywhere. And our lives are kind of like that. Sin is everywhere, It's all over the place. It's in every corner of the house. God wants us to sweep the sin out of our house. He wants us to clean our house in preparation. What did Jesus do? His life was sinless. He was the spotless lamb. He was without sin. And by dying on the cross, he made you and I sinless. Now, we do still have sin in our lives, right? We're wrestling with that while we're in this life. But this idea of sweeping out the house, sweeping it clean, you know, think about that today. That's powerful imagery for you. How's your house? Is there sin you're letting sit in the corner that needs swept out? Is there something God wants to cleanse? And also representing that Jesus himself was sinless. And then you have the uh, feast of the first fruits. They, it was a barley harvest. It was the first harvest of the year in the spring, and they they would bring that before the Lord. It's, it's representative of Jesus as the first fruits. He's the very first of the crop. He's the first one to rise from the dead, and that is representative of you and I then being able to rise from the dead. Just like they would bring this first crop before God, and 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 they and it was like a. It was a time of remembering that God was the provider. They were anticipating a whole season of harvest, but this was the first. And Jesus is the first. So we would say that Jesus has fulfilled those first three feasts, okay? You feel like a nerd now? You an expert on Jewish uh, stuff? No, it gets way more complicated than that. But it's very, very important to understand because when you stop and realize that Jesus was the lamb, Jesus was crucified during this time. Jesus was resurrected on the Feast of the First Fruits. I mean, literally fulfilling these feasts. But then we come to another one, and it's this one that we're talking about today. It's Pentecost. Penta, five, 50. 50 days from the earlier feast. They would count off the days waiting for the day of Pentecost. It was a day when the wheat harvest would come, and they would, they would bring it before the Lord. And what they would do is they would bake two loaves of bread with yeast, with leaven. Two loaves. And they would bring them before the Lord. Now, this, this, this has meaning for us. You might be like, what are you talking about? Two loaves of bread, Jewish holidays, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it's so important that we understand because it helps us understand what Jesus has accomplished, what God has done, and what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. So they would have these two loaves of bread. Now, I'm just going to give you a hint right now. Most people believe that that's both Jews and Gentiles now. It was just the Jewish people as God's chosen people. 
But Jesus, it's the scripture says, Jesus broke down the dividing wall. You know, and so you, you bring these two loaves now on this day. And on this day, we see the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. You know, there's interesting stories about this. Like, God is so cool, some of the things he designed. When they would harvest the wheat harvest, they'd leave the corners. Anybody ever harvested anything? How about, how, come on, how many worked in a hay field at some point in your life? And, and when those mowers or whatever, they were tractor mowers, my experience with it, and, you know, you'd, you'd get right into the corners. Those things could turn like a 90-degree angle to get every bit of hay you could get, Right? But God instructed them to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. Do you know why he did that? To take care of the poor. God provided an economy in the Jewish system that took care of everything. I wonder how much, if we really got into it, how much we would learn from God instructing them about how to provide for the poor, how they dealt with taxation, if you will, how they managed things in their culture and society. God provided in amazing ways. And so at this feast, they would leave the corners of the field. We see this in the book of Ruth, if you're familiar with her story. And they, in fact, the Jews read Ruth on this holiday, remembering that, you know, Boaz is the king, kingsman redeemer. He, he's, the, you know, Jesus is our redeemer, etc. I don't have a lot of time to get into all of that today. So there's a harvest connection here. Now let's go back to the book of Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. Suddenly you realize this is a really big deal to the Jews. This day is hugely important. They've got people from all over the world. There were three feasts. They had the Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. There are people from all over the world and another feast is about to be fulfilled. And suddenly there came from heaven, verse 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I just want to pause here maybe and reflect on a couple of these um, scriptures. First of all, let's talk about the wind. I mean, that, that would be cool, right? If you saw the Bible Project video we showed a couple weeks ago, or was that last week? Last week already, wow. The wind rushes in there and you see these guys, the wind hits them and it's loud, it's thundering, it's, it's amazing. But this, is, this isn't just coincidence, this isn't God's like, hey, I'll just throw some wind in there, that'll be cool. But it's actually representative of some things. You know, the word spirit means breath. It's wind. All those things are, are related in the Bible. God is breathing on them. He's breathing his spirit into his people. The power has come. The spirit of God, the breath of God. So, that, so it rushes in to the room. And how about the fire? All the little fires they see. You know, the, you know fire is very symbolic throughout the Old Testament. Again, we, so much symbolism here. Not just symbolism, but fulfillment. It's more than just imagery. There's, there's power here. You know, it, remember when God appeared on Mount Sinai to the Jews? When he gave them the, the Ten Commandments? He appeared, there was fire. It was terrifying to the people. When, when God would be in the tabernacle at night, what was it? What was his presence represented as? A pillar of fire. When Solomon opened the temple and he sacrificed all those bulls and he gets on his knees and he prays to God, what happens? Fire from heaven. 
And the presence of God becomes so powerful, the priests can't even go in the temple. Fire is often representative of the spirit, the power of God present in the moment. And so each one of those things had to do with God's presence. And now we see that God's presence is now not just going to be in the Holy of Holies of the temple, but it's going to be in each individual. Every single one of you is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is no joke. That's a serious, serious matter. And for the Jews at the time, I mean, they revered the temple. It was the place God dwelled. It's where he represented his presence. When, when Paul says that each one of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's not just talking a, the general part of the temple. He's actually talking about the presence of God, holy of holies, innermost part of the temple. So when the fire comes on God's people, he dwells in them, with them. God is housed within you. His spirit, his breath, he's there. His fire's there. I wonder if I took that more seriously, how that would change the way I live. It's amazing what God has done. Okay, let's pause here for a second. All right, great story, JR. That's neat. Each one, this, where do we, you know, what does this tell us about God and what does this tell us about us? You are just like these guys. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The breath of God residing in you. The fire of God there. And Jesus said, remember, wait. Wait till you get this. What, and what does he call it? Power. It's power from God to do what I've called you to do. Don't you sometimes feel so weak in doing what God has called you to do? Or what you know God wants you to do? And you look at it and you go, that's too intimidating. It's too big for me. But Jesus says, I have power for you. My breath, my Holy Spirit there to be with you, to reside in you, to empower you. The whole world changed in this moment. You have to understand that God's relationship with the planet Earth and all of his creation changed in this moment. He breathed his spirit on his people in a way that had never been seen before. The Holy Spirit did things in the Old Testament in ways but now he's coming a power. Now that, now that we are forgiven our sin, we're, we can be a temple. You understand? We're, we're cleansed. You're like, wait, I'm not very clean. I know you're not. But Jesus died on the cross so that you could be. So that when God looks at you, he sees his son. So that he can say, I can live there, even though it's actually maybe a little messy. <laughs> because God is gracious and good. So he cleanses our temple, he cleanses our hearts, and he comes to reside with us. But not only that, see, this is the thing. When we, sometimes we talk about salvation like asking Jesus into our heart. We talk about this with children often, right? We're inviting him to come and live with us. And then we just do that like, great, he lives there. And we move on with our lives. But God gave us power for a reason, a mission. Wait, you will be my witnesses. Now wait in Jerusalem till you're clothed with power from on high. This is a clothing of power. God has given his Holy Spirit to his people. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, so it wasn't just these guys that heard it, the city heard it. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And it goes on to list these languages. So these guys come out, and the tongues that they're speaking in, they're declaring the wonders of God. They're praising, they're worshiping, they're, this is who God is. 
And they're doing it in actual other languages. See, remember that because it's Pentecost, there are people from all over the world here honoring God. And they're like, these guys are, they're from Galilee. But they're speaking in all of these other languages, declaring the wonders. It's a miracle. It's an amazing feat of power. And and it's very illustrative of what Jesus had already said. Okay, it starts in Jerusalem, but it's going to go out. Why is it going to go out? Because all these guys from all over are hearing this, and it's beginning. The beginning of the mission right here. Now, I want to address something briefly. You know, we talked about this last week. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned four times in the Gospels and once in the book of Acts in, the, in those terms, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes a doctrinal controversy today. And there's a number of different angles on it. I'm just going to speak to it just so that those of you that are familiar with the argument understand um, that I'm not dancing around that. We're actually going to have more time to talk about it because the rest of this book is filled with the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue with that. But, but for those of you that don't understand, there's a debate about whether or not we need to receive the Holy Spirit. You know, some people believe that when you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit, there's nothing else you need to do. Other groups teach that you're saved, but you don't yet have the Holy Spirit, you need to seek it. And we get dogmatic in our arguments about it. it's got to be this way or it's got to be that way. How many of you remember when you were saved? Okay, let me ask a different question. How many of you don't know when you were saved? I don't. I cannot tell you the day I was saved. I grew up in the church. I believed in God. I don't ha- I can't. Some people go, I was saved on such and such a day, 19-whatever, 2000-whatever. They remember. Some of us don't remember. Okay, so I'm, I'm not so dogmatic about this. Here's my conclusion without getting into all the details. Here's what I would say about it. Whether you believe you received their salvation or whether you believe you have to seek it, as a, seek it as a separate event, we all should be seeking a constant experience with the Holy Spirit. Constantly. We, we have to let go of some of the dogma and get to the point. What's the point? God wants to empower you to live his mission. You cannot live the mission without the power of the Holy Spirit. Period. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking, the Bible says. We see that these guys are multiple times filled with the Holy Spirit. The same guys. So it's something that repeats itself. So whatever you believe about that, I get it. I get all the arguments. But I feel like we, ha- we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. We need to be a people that walks in relationship with the Holy Spirit on a constant basis. We cannot live a life with Christ without it. God gave us himself. See, the Spirit isn't just power, it's himself. It's the Spirit of God. You know, we, yeah, anyway. I'm going to rabbit trail too much if I go too far down that road. So I'm not real, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm not, this, how we get there is not so much a mountain to die on to me as it is important that you and I as Christians are walking with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, okay? Now, there, the other thing is this. When we start talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, there are, there are extremes in this conversation, okay? There's one, what I consider an extreme, which says the, the, wor- the power of the Holy Spirit um, in things like tongues or prophecy or miracles or anything like that, it ceased. 
It ended after these guys left the earth. It's called cessationism. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit, because we have the word of God now, we don't need the Holy Spirit. And I just, that's extreme. It's not provable. I know that's a blunt and bold statement to make, but I just, it carries no weight to me. I don't think the scripture's clear about that at all. I believe that the Holy Spirit was given for, as, P, as Peter says later in this chapter, uh, for you and all who are far off, who will become Christians. We're all meant to walk with the Holy Spirit, and I think the power of the Holy Spirit is always a part of the church. So I don't think the gifts have ceased. On the other hand, then, we can get on the other extreme where it's like, I can't even decide what color underwear to wear in the morning without the Holy Spirit telling me. It's like, well, that's an extreme too. That was a joke. But you know what I'm talking about, where, where people will abandon the truths of Scripture because, and claim it to be the Holy Spirit. They will do dumb things, and they're dumb, We've seen, hey, we all make mistakes, right? I've made mistakes. But there are things where we get outside of what God has taught in his word and then use the Holy Spirit as our scapegoat for that. That's wrong as well. A wise man avoids the extremes here. We need to be balanced. We need to understand the word of God. But on the other hand, here's the thing. Here's the trap in these things of the Holy Spirit. It's that we shouldn't do anything. That... These guys, these guys are radical, and, and yet, I, I mentioned it, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it to you, but it's like one of those things, oh, it's a thinking, in church you should be quiet. I'm not sure I agree. I see radical in the Bible. I see loud, praising, crazy. I see David dance in his underwear, basically. Okay? Now, I'm not encouraging you to do that. I'm going to kick you out of here if you do that next week, Okay? <laughs> The point is this, Uh, we've we've got to be able to let go of our traditions or our cultural thoughts and embrace the truths of the scripture. God's word defies logic. We need to be logical. I'm a logical guy. I'm very much a fan. But there are it ebbs and flows. There are points where these guys come out and they're speaking in tongues. Okay, let's go on and read what they say. Skipping on down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed. How many of you like being perplexing to other people? Awkward. That guy's weird. Jared's weird. But others mocked saying they're filled with new wine. This is an uncomfortable situation. I don't want to go out in the street and be mocked. But God had them do this. I'm glad they had the courage to do it. I'm glad they were willing to be radical. I'm glad they were willing to go against the status quo. And now they're in the Bible, their story. Come on. There's something here that we have to wrestle with where we see ourselves in it. It's challenging. So they think they're drunk. I don't know. If I heard a guy talking in another language, I'm not sure drunk would be my answer, but it's what they chose. And so they're, they're making fun of them. These guys are drunk. Something's happened, this wind. Um, it's just very interesting. And then Peter stands up and he gives a message. And it picks up in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he goes on and, he, and he's saying, they're not drunk. They're fulfilling what Joel prophesied. 
that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. How much flesh? Okay, I just, this can get tricky. But it, it, when, I, when I hear this, I'm, I'm thinking there, there's a fullness to what God's doing here. Not a temporary crutch. There's something full about what God's doing here. In the last days it shall be, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, etc. And I want to skip down to verse 21, and it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter stands up and he starts the first message, the first sermon, if you will, the first gospel message since Jesus has left. Now remember, this is Peter, who we studied not very long ago, who had just been had just excused himself from being one of Jesus' apostles, and then Jesus reinstates him. Here, you know, and we would look at Peter and go, what, what's the deal there? And here he stands in power and begins to preach. And he rises as one of the early church leaders. And he begins to preach about Jesus and about the fact that they had crucified him and that he was resurrected from the dead. He, starts, he goes on into the 30s there. He's you know, making this argument about Jesus. And it gets all the way down to verse 37. And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So Peter, Peter has just preached in power. Peter preached in power. Say that five times fast. Peter has just preached a message in great power, and they're cut to the heart. Doesn't that sound a lot different than previously when Jesus is lecturing them and all this kind of stuff? They're resisting. All of a sudden, there's a power there, and the door opens, and many begin to believe. And they're cut to the heart. They're convicted by the word. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For, this pro- for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness to them. Save yourselves. I want to focus in on verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. I don't even have 3,000 people here. We're going to have to go get some. Let's get 3,000 people saved today. Come on. This is huge. Now, this is significant. We're going to see this several times in the book of Acts. We see the feast being fulfilled. But can I remind you of a story in the book of Exodus? When God came... In a different way, he came on the mountain and he gave them the Ten Commandments. And what happened? There was one, one event that took place when Moses came off the mountain with the tablets, with the Ten Commandments. About 3,000 people God slayed that day because they were, they were worshiping a golden calf. So when God came on Mount Sinai and he delivered the Ten Commandments, there was death. And, and law brings this, the knowledge of sin, and the knowledge of sin increases our understanding of our own depravity. It's death to us. 3,000 people rebelled against God and died that day. But on the day the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people were saved. That's not a coincidence. In fact, the Jews celebrate Pentecost also. Their tradition teaches that that was the day that God gave them the Ten Commandments. But it was the day the Holy Spirit came. There's life. There's the breath of God. It's all part of God's wisdom and his, his design. It's powerful and it's amazing. So about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. I want to wrap up chapter 2 
by looking at the end there. Beginning in verse 42, I want to read this to you. And again, I put these questions at the bottom of uh, that, the Bible study that we're going through, the reading plan. And there are, just, there are four questions uh, based out of the Discovery Bible Study Method. And it, it, says, what, it says, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about us? When we read this passage, think about this. Is this a reflection of even who we're called to be today as the church, as God's people? These stories aren't meant to just be um, bewildered by or enamored with. They're meant to be an example. We're to learn about ourselves and we're to learn about God from the word of God. So as we read this, let's consider who we are in this story. Okay, 3,000 people got saved and then it goes on, Luke says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What do we do when we gather together on Sunday? We listen to teaching. And the fellowship, in other words, relationship with one another, being together to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. I just love it when I hear stories from this community of people where people got together and they did something to serve one another, or they pulled their money together and did something for someone else. Or when, someone, when, when one of you just rises to the occasion and decides to put a meal plan for somebody together for somebody who just got out of the hospital or someone that just had a baby, having all things together, having, ha- being together and having things in common. This is healthy, healthy, healthy community. And it's exactly what we even want to accomplish today. Being healthy community being in each other's lives. If you're counting on me to make a meal plan for you, you're going to be hungry. But some people out here are gifted that way. Whatever your gift is, bring it to the community to be a part in whatever little way. It's awesome. It's just such a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Incredibly generous group. How many of you cringed when I said that? I always do. Every time I read that, there's a little part of my heart that goes, I should sell the boat. (laughs) My my kids just said no. Yeah, because we don't want to do that. But yet, there's just such, it's not a, if we do it legalistically, it's going to be pointless. But if God stirs our heart with a generosity to give like that, man, let's do that. He's the provider. (laughs) He'll take care of things. And day by day, day by day, not month by month, week by week, year by day by day, they're doing this day to day. They're doing life together day by day. They're being community day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they both, they went to the temple and they were in homes. You know, again, we, we, we argue over silly things like church is supposed to be in the home. No, the church is supposed to get together in a big group. How about both? Why can't it be both? And everything in between. There's just so much, there's so, so, so dynamic. There's all kinds of angles of how the church operates. They were doing both. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. What? They were favored in their community. What a blessing to be favored in your community. Our nation has gone a long time being a favored group. 
Christians are in the United States. That's changing. But what a wonderful season it is when you're favored in the place that you live. They were blessed. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church is meant to grow. The church is designed to grow. People are meant to be saved. We're meant to reach people. We're meant to bring this transformational power of the Holy Spirit into other people's lives. From things as radical as tongues and other languages to as simple as an act of generosity to somebody. That's God working through you to bring that good news into your reality. I don't know about you, but this excites me. This motivates me. It reminds me. I'm not just fighting through this life on my own. I'm a place somewhere inside of me, by God's mercy, there's the Holy of Holies, a place where the presence of God dwells. I didn't earn it. I definitely don't deserve it. But he blessed me through his sacrifice on the cross and has given a place for him to reside in my heart. And the same is true for you. Would you stand, please? Game changer, this chapter is. The world changed on Pentecost. I wouldn't challenge you. I would encourage you. I, I, you know, whatever your background is, whatever your theology is, ask God about the Holy Spirit. Invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of your life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. I prepare, pray it almost every Sunday on the way into church. Johnny's always riding with me. And he always is hearing me pray it. Lord, fill us with your Spirit today. We need you to do what we do and to be who we're called to be. Lord, I thank you for my friends and family here today. Lord, that you have made us a community of believers. God, that we are a little uh, um, reflection of or product of even this story we read today. That because this happened 2,000 years ago, this community of believers started to function And Lord, here we are today because of that. So God, we thank you for that this morning. I pray for every challenged mind and heart based on this message. Lord, people that that are nervous about what it means to be in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, people who don't believe the Holy Spirit moves in power anymore, um, people that question whether or not they have the Holy Spirit in their lives. Lord, wherever people are at, I pray that you would meet them in that moment, that you would show that you are the loving Father. Jesus said... If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Lord, help us to and remind us to keep asking for more of you in our lives. Lord, I thank you for every gift that each person here has. There are gifted people in this room. Everyone has something that you've empowered them to do. Lord, help us to steward that well. And bring it into great fruitfulness in each life. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be encouraging and comforting your children this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like to receive prayer this morning, if you came here today and you're struggling or you want to respond to the message, you know, and pray about something, I've got a prayer team, Aaron and Leah are right over here on my left. Please come and receive prayer from them. They love to pray with you. Otherwise, don't miss next week. Mark Spencer's going to be here. Don't miss it. He's one of my favorite people. We'll see you next week.